what I try to do when I talk about the death act itself is to break it down and, and, and just kind of identify what is it and what is it not. This is Dave Warnock, and he has ALS. And the reality is, you go to sleep and you don't wake up. He is a former evangelical pastor turned atheist. And on the other side of that, you're not aware that you're not waking up. You're not aware that you're dead. This is my understanding of it. Now, this is uh, obviously none of us know. After being diagnosed with ALS a couple years ago, Dave decided to start his own movement called Dying Out Loud. But, you know, it's someone have said before, what was it like before you were alive? And you think, well, nothingness. And you're okay. How was that for you? Well, it was okay. <laughs> and so if you think of it that way, it's, it, that's what it's going to be like on the other end of things. He likes to talk about seizing moments and how he approaches death without a belief in a God or an afterlife. If you've been following this podcast, you can probably tell that I'm really fascinated by what shapes our relationship with our death. Is the shaping gradual, beginning when we are young? Um, I grew up in uh, Arkansas. I was the middle of three boys, broken home, parents divorced when I was eight, mom remarried when I was 10, and uh, she was married to my stepdad for about 50 years. And it was a pretty stable home. Uh, obviously, there was a, a disruption from the divorce and things like that. And me being the middle child, I had some issues. And um, so, yeah, just um, northwest Arkansas, rural, very, not not dirt poor, but I'd say on the lower end of the economic spectrum. Went to high school, uh, fairly non-eventful high school. I was a good student. I was just naturally smart. Didn't have to work at it. And how much does what we believe or don't believe play a role? I ended up getting converted uh, to Christianity right out of high school. Well, the sensing an urgency to spread the gospel, uh, I was evangelical and charismatic. And, and so I didn't go to college because Jesus was going to come back next year. So I didn't have time for all that. Or is our relationship with death largely shaped by big experiences? Spent the next 30-something years, three and a half decades, in the evangelical church. Many of those years served as paid staff on churches as associate pastor or some other role there. The ones that changed the trajectory of our life forever. For Dave, after 35 years of being very involved in the church, he came to the conclusion that what he had believed his whole life was no longer true. Stepped away from Christianity in my uh, mid-50s. And so he had to reorient himself in a world without a God, where after death, there would be no afterlife. And um, kind of started over, rebooted my life. Uh, my wife remained a believer. Uh, we were married 38 years, and then I ended that marriage after a few years of me living with her as a an evangelical Christian and me as an atheist. Hmm. And the, dis- the disconnect just got wider and wider. And so I left that uh, marriage uh, in uh, 2017, um, so a little over four years ago. Um, 
And then um, a couple of years after that, I got the diagnosis in February uh, of 2019, almost almost two years ago now, uh, that I had ALS. And um, so what I developed after that was uh, this thing called Dying Out Loud, uh, kind of a movement or an organization, unofficial, where I began to talk to groups, secular groups, uh, either online or in person uh, before COVID, um, about living and dying as an atheist, uh, looking at a, a terminal illness as an atheist, as opposed to my former view of life and death as a Christian and, you know, the, the differences in that. And so that became the thing we called Dying Out Loud, and, and it's kind of what I've been giving my time and attention to for the last two years, um, and here we are, and, and, the, and that's, that's kind of up to date. Thank you so much for sharing all that, and I am, of course, eager to hear more about how you approach death as an atheist, um, but I first just wanted to go back and hear what it was like after you gave up your faith. Did you feel adrift? Yes, completely disoriented, um, completely alone. Um, evangelicalism is a lot different than what one would experience within the, what, what's known as mainstream churches like Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist, where you know it's more of a, a an addition to your life than it than it is a lifestyle. Mm. Um, evangelicalism, the kind that that I was immersed in, was was not just a part of your life; it was all of your life. You were completely immersed in it. And so to come out of that is a disorienting experience because typically most of us, when we come out of that, we don't have friends on the other side. All of our life was was in that water. We were, it's like swimming in a, in a river and you come out of the river onto the bank and you don't have any connection with anything on the bank. Everything you knew was in that water, and so you're just in a completely different world, and you don't have anyone to talk to about it. And so there was a sense of feeling very alone and and very disoriented and traumatized, and wondering, okay, now what does my life look like? Who am I even? And uh, it took me a while to connect with other people who'd been through things similar to that. You know, I did find. Um, groups that I could relate with and people that had been through the same thing before me. And so I started talking to them and finding out that I wasn't uh, some kind of a freak. I wasn't an alien. I, I was not some, it, it was, you know, outside the norm. It was abnormal, but it wasn't like, I wasn't a freak. It had happened to others before me. And so once I found those people, I began to develop a new community both mm-hmm. online and in and in in person, I was living at the time in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, or outside Nashville, and and so I began to meet other people in the Middle Tennessee area that that had been through the same thing, and so we connected around that identity. Mm-hmm. And so then, how did you arrive at atheism specifically? Well, it's it's a, it's a default position, actually. It's it's um, there's. You know, there's. I originally kind of avoided the word because it has such negative connotations, but 
once I realized what it was, it, it's not a belief, it's not a statement of belief, it's, it's a reaction or a response to a statement of belief. And atheism doesn't say, I believe there's no God. Atheism says, I don't believe there's a God. Mm-hmm. Those two things sound very similar, but they're really worlds apart because I'm not claiming some kind of a belief that I need to go out and prove now. Um, what I'm doing is responding to the theist belief or the theist statement of belief that there's a God. And I'm saying, I don't see enough evidence for me to be able to agree with you. So I would be what you would call an agnostic atheist because agnostic just simply means I don't know. And mm. in, that, in that sense, we're all agnostics because all of us would have to say at the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know if there's a God. We don't know what's after death. I have an opinion about it and I have an idea but I can't say categorically, I know this is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I say I'm an agnostic atheist, that my first part of that is I don't know. And the second part of that is I don't have enough evidence in front of me to accept your statement that there is a God. And so that's kind of how I, I came to that. Mm-hmm. And so does that mean, and I'm just wondering if there are different types of atheism, is the type the agnostic atheist, so there's no belief in the soul or reincarnation or anything like that. Is that right? Well, there's, like like any other group, there are different spectrums within it, if you will. I know a lot of people that would identify as an atheist or an agnostic or non-religious or secular or humanist, you know, free thinkers. There's a lot of different labels, but some would, would say, you know, I... I don't believe in the Christian God that I grew up with or the God of the Bible, but I kind of think there's something out there. I think there's a higher power of some kind. I, I think we, we don't, we, this didn't just happen. Um, you know, my partner actually kind of lands in that spot where she says, I, I think there's something that, that started this, something that, that uh, is out there that's bigger than us, that's more than us. Uh, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that because it doesn't impose itself on me or anyone else. It's just a personal opinion. The, the problem I have with evangelicalism is, is by the definition of the word, they're trying to evangelize me. They're trying to persuade me to identify with them. They're trying to persuade me to think like them. And they want the whole world to think that way. And in fact, they say, if you don't think this way and believe this way, then, well, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. And we're right. And so the more benign forms of spirituality or thinking that there's something more, that's fine with me. That doesn't do any damage. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's just a personal thought process that an individual might have. For for me personally, I don't have a need for that. I don't have a need to say there's something else besides me. There's something else out there. I can simply say, you know what? I don't know. But for me, I'm fine with not knowing. I don't need to create an answer where there doesn't seem to be one. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like you've gone through a lot of transitions. And just knowing that you were diagnosed with ALS in 2019, and what was it like hearing that news? Can you describe it? Uh, Yeah, that was a tough day, just uh, February 26th. 2019, about 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> wow. It's one of, those, you remember. one of those moments. Yeah, yeah, you don't forget that. Um, 
I I had known for some time that something was wrong. I, you know, the symptoms for me started in my fingers and hands. I was doing insurance. I was in the insurance business, and there's you know a lot of forms and paperwork, and and I began to realize I was having trouble forming certain letters. You know, the circles and the sixes and the eights and the zeros. The my fingers weren't doing what they were supposed to do, and. And, I, you know, you think it's carpal tunnel or you're just getting weak and old and soft. And then I realized I couldn't grip a bowling ball. I couldn't swing a golf club. And mm. over the course of, of really about a year, uh, 2018, I knew that, that something was wrong and I needed to go get it checked out. And, of course, you Google things and, you know, you can come up with all kinds of scenarios from the internet Mm -hmm. and you know they can make you think you're worse than you are they can make you think you're better than you are but you see all the options and I knew that ALS was on the table I knew that was an option um but I didn't I I waited till the beginning of 2019 because insurance in America um and I knew that there would be a lot of tests involved and I, I knew that I would have to uh pay through my deductible and my insurance policy and I thought well let's keep this in one calendar year and not spread it over two Mm -hmm. and so as it turns out it didn't matter it's not like I could have caught it sooner and you know fixed it so it really didn't matter that I waited but uh, when I started going to the doctor and referred to a neurologist and doing all the tests and the neurologist I saw at Vanderbilt told me that this EMG test was very conclusive and the results would be immediate and so I just told him you know I don't you know don't sugarcoat this just tell me what it is and he said I I will and so when he was done I said well do you have the results and he said yeah I said is it ALS and he said yeah and then he paused a minute and he looked at me and he said I'm sorry to tell you this but you have ALS (laughs) Mm. wow and and then he told me to get dressed and there's the elevator and so the tough part of that, and, and I've learned since then that neurologists don't have the best bedside manner, but uh, there was no, you know, there's a brochure, here's a packet of information that might be helpful. We want you to see a, a therapist here to walk through some questions you might have. You know, uh, 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 some individual might walk out of that office and go jump off a bridge because you've seen on the internet that you have a lifespan of three to five years. And so you're thinking, well, hell. Um, this diagnosis just ended my life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, so there's that sense of finality to it. And, uh, and, and again, you don't know when they say three to five years. Well, if, if I've got five years on the, on the upside of this thing, and, but the last two years of that are in a bed worth a feeding tube in me and not able to turn myself and feed myself, then that's not what I want. So I'm thinking when I go out of there, well, I may have two good years. Mm. I may have one good year. That was my mindset. Uh, immediately I quit working and moved out of my apartment in with some friends and thought I'm going to do what I'm going to grab the moments I can grab because I may have one good year left or two good years and I don't want to waste them working for money that I, I won't be able to use one day. And so I had a, a real seize the moment kind of attitude after that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask is, I mean, how did you make sense of it all um, without any sort of orientation toward a religion that maybe would have guided you before and how to think about the diagnosis? 
Well, I just had a very materialistic viewpoint. I, I had abandoned the Christian ideas of heaven and hell and afterlife um, for, for, for years now. And so this diagnosis didn't, didn't modify that. It didn't alter that at all. It just I had a very practi- practical, pragmatic view of, well, this life is all we have. Um, there's not one after this. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is the real show. So, you know, we all know that we all know we're terminal. We all know that we have limited time. And I was in my 60s when I got the diagnosis and still am. Uh, and I thought, you know, on the upside, I may have 20 more good years. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I, I never wanted to be a tottering old man with a cane and, you know, shuffling around drooling on himself. So I thought, uh, you know, I don't want to live past. I, I don't, I'm more interested in the quality of my life than the quantity of my days. And that sounds like a song, but it's, it's really how I already thought before the diagnosis. So getting the diagnosis only tended to amplify that thinking for me. It, it really just, uh, I just mashed the accelerator down and said, I need to get to living a lot quicker now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't. It didn't make me feel like, oh no, I wish there was an afterlife. I wish there was a God I could talk to about this. Uh, I didn't have any of those thoughts whatsoever. It was just like, okay, this is it. Now, what do I do? And how do I? How do I want to spend the rest of my time? And that was my immediate reaction. And and it's it's remained that up until now. Mm. So, has there ever been a point where? you felt um, that sometimes you wish that you were still a believer, like perhaps it might make it easier at any point? Or has that thought not even crossed your mind at all? No, it hasn't. And, and in fact, I spend a lot of my time in my Dying Out Loud work talking about that, that whole concept of wishing. And, you know, the, the idea when, when I, and this is what I talk about a lot and I break it down, the idea of an afterlife by its definition causes you to it causes us to diminish the quality of this life if we think there's something coming around the corner then it's going to by definition cause me to to not treat this life as as preciously as i should uh because why would i i've got all of eternity to to deal with that and and so i i'm glad that there's not the thought or the notion or the wishful thinking for an afterlife or a deity to do this for me or do this with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm in it alone. Uh, and I, it's up to me what I do with my life. It's up to me to write my own story. And so because I have that understanding, it causes me to, to grab the moments with more gusto and to realize how precious they are how important every day is, how precious every day, every week, uh, and, and to make the most of it. Um, the, the difficulty is I couldn't, have, I couldn't have picked a worse time to have ALS than to go through a pandemic mm. and, and to be shut up and not be able to do the things that I would want to do. So that has been a real kick in, kick in the gut on top of it for me having to shut everything down and we we had travel plans last year to go all over the world uh doing my work dying out loud work and all that came to a screeching halt in 
in February of last year, about it, almost exactly a year ago. Jeez. So then, then how have you been um, finding meaning in every day, or you know, altering your plans? So you're still, like you say, taking each moment with gusto, um, but under the current circumstances. It's been hard. I'll be honest. Um, I, I, I've I've struggled with it. Um, it's affected my energy level, my mental health. It's affected my relationship with my girlfriend. It's, it's, I've had to readjust mentally several times and continue to have to do so, uh, especially when the weather's cooler and wet and mm. the days are short and gray. And, you know, yeah. I, I've, I've tried to focus on writing my book. Uh, I, I do YouTube shows and podcasts like this and, you know, any of those that come my way, I, I get, you know, I get energy from that. Um, and derive meaning from that. I get a lot of emails and messages from people who've come across my work and and have been inspired by it or helped by it in some way. And, and so that gives me energy and meaning and purpose. And, and I've just, you know, just, uh, you, you find that stuff where you can. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've been able to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky because I'm more of a positive-minded person than I am negative. I've always kind of had an energy about that. And I think that's, I can't take any credit for that. That's just kind of how I'm wired. Um, but but you do have to work at it when things are leaning against you. And, and I've had to to do more work in that in that way mentally in the last year, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that takes a lot of energy out of you. Yeah, and as as the physical decline happens, and as I'm, you know, as my disease is progressing. Um, it, it's discouraging because I do know the window's closing on on my opportunity to do things, and we're we're actually doing some travel planning now, looking at the year ahead. And um, I've gotten my first vaccine dose. Oh, great. Um, my girlfriend's got hers because she was in one of the trials. So we're gonna we're gonna step up our travel plans for the year, and that's you know that's given me a little bit of an energy boost. And mm-hmm. where's the first place that you want to go? Well. The place that we've booked for now is uh, we're flying to Amsterdam in September, and we're going to spend most of the month of September in Europe, different parts. Um, the The Dying Out Loud work has given me contacts with people all over the world, so there are people that I've been in touch with over the last couple of years who I want to meet and see, and you know they've offered us places to stay, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of connection that way that's that's come out of this. And but prior to that, we're going to do some domestic trips to California and Florida and Boston, uh, Seattle, just, uh, for one thing, I've got a lot of air, I've got a lot of credits we got to use because we had to cancel a lot of flights last year. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that all sounds really fun. And, um, I'm wondering too, as an atheist, I mean, you talk a lot about approaching death as an atheist and I'm just wondering how you do that, how you think about um, death. Well, I've talked a lot about that, actually. I'm uh, One of the groups I've become associated with that I work with now is called the Final Exit Network. And um, they are an organization, a nonprofit that helps people like me take matters into our own hands and end our life with dignity on our own terms and our own timing. And so uh, with because of that and because... <laughs> the title of my stuff is Dying Out Loud. I get a lot of questions uh, from people about 
the, the death process itself. And, you know, are you afraid of death? Those kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've, I've really, because of that, I've examined it a lot. I've thought about it a lot. I've talked about it a lot. And the honest answer is, and I, and I hate to say it, you know, I don't want to sound like I have a lot of bravado, but I'm really not afraid of dying. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of, of not making the most of life. Um, of course, I don't want to, you know, be in pain and suffer. No one wants that. Yeah. And so what I like to say is that death is nothing more than the natural result of living. Mm-hmm. And so we're all going to get there. Um, the question is, how do we get there? And what does it look like before we get there? So when I think of the act itself, that's how I look at it. I'm going to close my eyes and I won't open them. And and after that, I won't be aware of anything. So I'm not going to be thinking, oh, my God, this death thing sucks. Uh, it's just going to be, I'm gone. And what I'm aware of, though, is that the ones I leave behind, those are the ones that suffer now. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that feel my void. And, and that's what's the most difficult thing to consider for me is is how it impacts them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I talk to friends and family about whether they fear death or dying. It's always interesting to distinguish or hear people's responses. And most people say, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of dying, which I think is interesting because I feel, and obviously this could change um, one day, but for me, I definitely fear the death part, the sort of nothingness. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that yeah but i mean if you do you do you agree that when you're dead you're not aware that you're dead yes i do agree with that (laughs) but i think that the interesting thing and i've thought a lot about this too is that um it's almost just the anticipation of the nothingness um versus if i were a little bit better of just being in the present moment and not thinking a lot about that anticipation, um, then I probably would be better off. Well, that's the trick. And that's the hard part is to be in the present moment. That's something we always talk about, be in the moment. It's almost a, a jaded cliche, but it's it really is, it's hard. It really is hard, but it's really what it's all about. There's a couple of phrases that I adopted early on in my, in my Dying Out Loud uh, work. And one of them is, is we do not remember days, we remember moments. And if you look at your life, we f- you find that that's true. It's not a day that you remember so much, it's a moment. You might have been hiking in a, in a, a national park in a beautiful canyons everywhere, but it's a particular moment when the sun was setting and you're looking out over the vista and you realize, wow, this is amazing. That's the moment you remember, not the whole day. Mm-hmm. And so that's how life is. Life is nothing more than a collection of moments. And it's, it's our work to be cognizant of that and aware of that to the degree that we can appreciate the individual moments and not get caught up in all the stuff that surrounds them. And the other phrase that I adopted, and you can get it on a T-shirt, by the way, in our merch store, nice. is... Uh, <laughs> is is called uh it's it just says carpe the fucking diem uh-huh. and and that's just a way that that we phrase it to to say you have to seize the day it's not going to present itself to you you've got to go out and get it mm-hmm. 
And and that's the thing is is the difficult the, the challenge though is living in that moment and not getting caught up in all of the swirling stuff around it. So when we think about the end of things and coming to that place where it all where the lights go out, yeah, that's the hard part is is realizing this is all going to be gone and I'm not going to have any more of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I wonder. I mean, how do you be in the present moment, um, but also plan for the future and have this future orientation knowing that our future is limited? So it's kind of like you have to be in both spaces. Yeah, we all have to deal with that. We deal with the reality that life is finite. Um, I think that's why religion created the notion of an afterlife is because none of us like the idea that this is all we have because what if we mess it up really bad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we don't get a do-over. And and none of us like to think of that. So we've created this this idea that, oh, no, 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 you're not going to just, you're not going to, it's not going to be over. You're going to come back as a an antelope or you're going to, you know, be in heaven with Jesus or whatever stories we tell ourselves. And that, that's my own opinion and you may disagree with or have a different one and that's fine. But I just believe that that's that religion has created these stories to make us feel better about the stuff that we don't like about the life that we're living. Mm. And so, is there any sort of comfort that you have in imagining anything after you die? Um, and as an example, you know, I find comfort in thinking about living on in some way through my children. And so I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have anything like that um, that brings you comfort. Well, the comfort I think I I find is um, I'm going to come back as a ghost and haunt the people that caused me trouble in my life. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> no. Um, I, think, I think what I'm focused on and, and where I take my comfort, and that's why I'm so driven to finish my book, because it, it's something that I leave behind, a record of myself in my own words. Mm-hmm. And I realize not everyone gets to do that. I mean, I guess we all could, but I, the reality is most people don't. Um, so people are left to remember you the way that they want to remember you, the way they think about you in, in pictures and videos and stories and as, as they're passed down. What I'm enjoying is that I get to tell my story myself mm. and and people, my kids, my grandkids, friends, whatever, can read that for generations. And yeah, they can, they can form their own ideas about my story or they can, if they were in it, they can remember it differently, you know, in the world of alternative facts that we live in now. Um, but at least I will have gotten to tell it myself and I will tell you know, my story as I see it, and that will always be there. And, and I like that. I like, I like being able to record that in my own voice. And that t- it gives me a lot of comfort thinking that uh, uh, that's, it's become really, really important for me to do that because that's one of the few things we can leave behind mm-hmm. is our story. Yeah, and that was actually my next question, just... Um without any sort of belief in the afterlife or a soul living on, do you find yourself more intensely drawn to creating a legacy? Yeah, I I wouldn't frame it in 
a legacy terminology because that sounds like I'm a little more uh, a little more self-important than I want to be. I don't think of it as a, I guess legacy can be just simply what you leave behind. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, that's true. Yeah, I am driven to to do that. A lot of it. I'm also gratified that the dying out loud work I've been doing has given me a platform that I didn't I didn't have before. I get requests for interviews from places everywhere now, mm. all over the world. Cool. And 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 it's and it's all because they heard me on a show or they saw something I wrote or heard you know, heard me speak somewhere or someone said, Hey, you need to check this guy out. All of that happened because I got diagnosed with ALS. Mm. I was a, I was an atheist just minding my business and selling insurance. I wasn't doing any of this before that. So that's a real double-edged sword because I would not I would rather have not gotten ALS. It it's a horrible horrible thing. And and I just yeah, I was happy, you know, happy as a clam living my life and then I got this thing. But since I've gotten this and and what I've been able to do with it has brought me some of the most, the greatest satisfaction without trying, I don't want to overstate it, but probably the greatest satisfaction of my life. Wow. And and that, that includes all the years I was pastoring and a minister of the gospel. And, you know, of course, I raised a family and I'm gratified in who they've become. The, I've got three incredible children who are very productive and responsible adults. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm proud of that, my part in that. Um, but this work I've done in the last couple of years and the people I've been able to touch and the letters and, and messages I've gotten, again, literally from all over the world, have been a mind-blowing experience for me and gratifying beyond description that I get this platform to do this and that, that people, uh, that I'm able to say some things that matter to people, that make a difference in their lives. Mm. Um, that I just, I mean, I, like last week, just a 20-year-old kid sent me a message that said, I've been following your your work and listening to your thing, and I just want you to know you've greatly impacted how I look at life and death. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I just, oh. and that's just a, that's just a, an example, one of dozens like that that I've gotten in the last couple of years. And I, I just can't put a price tag on that. I, I just don't even know how to, I don't even know how to absorb that because it's just blown my mind. And so in that sense, I've just, I guess it's the classic thing of turning lemons into lemonade. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What a special thing to hear from someone though. Wow. No, it's just, yeah, it's, it just, I mean, yeah. Wow. Just, that's the only thing I can say is, wow. It's just blown me away over and over again. So then what is the most satisfying part of your work? Is it is it hearing from people like that 20-year-old? Um, or what what brings you so much meaning from the work that you do in Dying Out Loud? That's it. Yeah, it's, it's those kind of messages. It's being able to touch people. I mean, when I was traveling and we were doing our, our meetings live, it was being able to connect with a human, you know, to hug a neck and to to cry together, laugh together, those kind of experiences, those kind of moments, I, I really cherish those. But beyond that, when I do get a message from someone like that, that that I've never met and may never meet in person, most of them I won't. But just knowing that 
that something I'm giving my energy to can in some way, large or small, have an impact on someone else. I just think that's priceless, honestly. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And I'm sure you're going to reach even more people with this book that you're writing. I'm wondering, do you talk in the book or I imagine you think a lot about um, what a good death really looks like to you? Well, yeah, I I haven't written about that part of it yet because um, that'll be close to the end, obviously. But um, I think when I, to, to use the phrase, what a good death looks like, I think it really... Uh, flips around to ask the question, what does a good life look like? And um, that's what we, that's the only thing we can focus on is what are we doing with our life? We can't, you know, we can't control our death when and how we die, but we can control our life. How do, how do we live? Mm -hmm. And so that's a part that, that I think we have to pull back and focus on and the, the rest of it will take care of itself. Mm hmm. So you focus more on the life part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm <laughs> I'm hoping I will be, you know, when when the quality of the life, you know, if we if we don't get a lot more years, then I'm hoping that I can come to the end of that gracefully thinking that or, you know, believing that I've put my best self out there. Um, a lot of ex-Christians like myself can get caught up in a lot of regret and um, kicking ourselves for what we would call wasted years or, you know, not not living the life that we would have lived if we hadn't gotten caught up in religion and that, that sort of thing. And and I've, I've obviously dealt with some of that myself, but I've really come to the place where I think I've been able to let go of that. And I, I came across a quote last year from Maya Angelou, a poet that you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. And she, she just says, um, do the best you can do until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Mm. And to me, that's a simple yet profound way to look at life. Because um, as a Christian, I was doing the best I could. I was doing what I thought was right. I was believing what I thought was right and correct, and I did the best I could. But this portion of my life is me saying, well, okay, I was wrong. I think I was wrong, and now I'm gonna let that go, and now I'm gonna try to do better. And so if I get up every day thinking, you know, I may have made some mistakes yesterday, I got impatient, I got angry, whatever, um, I'm not gonna beat myself up about that or, or, or live in that. I'm just gonna say, okay, now, do better. And it's not a positive thinking kind of mentality. It's just letting letting it go and moving on. And and, and really all we, and it goes back to what we said earlier, living in the moment. How, how can I live in the moment? And and that's one way is to let go of the moments that have passed by. Let go of the moments that have passed by and try and learn from them. Regardless of what you believe, this seems like a really important life lesson. Thank you so much, Dave, for sharing your Dying Out Loud project with us and for talking about what it is like to approach death as an atheist. As your ALS progresses and your death edges closer, I hope that you can continue to find ways to seize moments with gusto. If you would like to learn more about Dave, 
and his dying out loud movement, and also get updates about his memoir that he is hoping to release this summer, check out his website at daveoutloud.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less.